And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. When you think of the most iconic songwriters, musical figures of our time, uh, Paul Simon would be right at the top of the list. Uh, His music, the music of Simon and Garfunkel, and then his solo albums are uh, the signposts of uh, my life and the lives of so many others. Uh, He sold, I think, 170 million albums uh, in his career, and he just uh, laid down a new great one, Stranger to Stranger, at the age of 74. He performed uh, on the first night of the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. On the eve of that performance, I had a chance to sit down with him uh, to talk about his extraordinary uh, career starting uh, in the New York City music scene of the 1950s and 60s to the emergence of Simon and Garfunkel and then their very public breakup and what led him to the stage at the Wells Fargo Center performing uh, at Hillary Clinton's convention. Paul Simon, welcome. So I have to tell you, like most people of my age, mm-hmm. you know, you were kind of an iconic figure and are uh, because your music is sort of, these are the signposts of uh, our lives. But uh, you're just a guy from New York City. I mean, you started off mm-hmm. as a kid in the public schools of New York City. Uh, let's see, what, what do I have here? PS 164. I was I went to PS 40, so I'm like a big New York public schools guy. Right. But that's where you you started started this, huh? Uh, playing. That's where the musical well, the, thing began. I can tell you exactly. It was in the fourth grade. We were sitting in the auditorium waiting for the school buses to come. It was a rainy day, so it was like a Maybe that's why everybody was there. And so they had like a little talent show. And this this kid comes up and he sings a song called They Tried to Tell Us We're Too Young. And everyone in the audience is just, you know, going wild. And uh, and that kid was Art Garfunkel, (laughs) you know. And I... I said, this is, well, that's interesting. I wonder if I can sing, you know. So, uh, you know, I checked it out to see if I, to see if I could sing. So that's when it began. Uh, and my father was, Your dad was my a music, father right? was, was a musician. And the other big moment that's so early on is I was sitting in my room, you know, playing something, I don't know what might have been some baseball card game. Maybe I was putting, making a set of baseball cards or something. And he was on his way out to work, and he was you know, wearing a tuxedo. And and uh, he was walked, like a, he was a band. He was in a band. In a, right. He was a he. Yeah. He was a band leader, and he played in bands. And so he was going out to do a club date. He was mm-hmm. a bass player, 
And he stuck his head in in the room and he said, oh, you have a nice voice, Paul. <laughs> you know, which, you know, these casual things become, have, a big, have a big impact. So that's, that's when I started. But uh, I wasn't interested in uh, the music that I, uh, you know, that I was hearing. But again, you know, uh, I can remember this, uh, how it began. I used to, I used to, I was a, always a big Yankees fan, a big baseball fan. Mm-hmm. And I used to write out the score, you know, a score, score the games, you know, mm-hmm. write out the lineups and yeah. then you, you can, fit, you know, score it, whether, you know, yeah. it's a single, a fly ball, right, right. a left field, cards, yeah. et cetera. So it, to listen to the Yankee games in order to, it was on a station, it was on uh, 1010 Wins, which is still there. It's an all, yeah, it's an right. all news station. Yeah. Right. But before the Yankee games came on, they had a show called Make Believe Ballroom. I think that's what was the name. Anyway, it was a pop music show. And they'd play, you know, whatever the pop music was that was popular, uh, you know, of the day, uh, P- Perry Como or Doris Day or, uh, or the, there was a singer named Vaughn Monroe that I particularly loathed, you know, <laughs> but I didn't pay any attention to it at all. I was just, I just had it on early because I didn't want to hear, I didn't want to miss the first pitch, you know, so, and it also gave me time to fill out, fill up the lineups, mm-hmm. you know, and as I'm filling it out, that this jockey says, I got this record in this morning, and uh, I have to say, this is the worst song that I've, <laughs> that I've ever heard. And if this record is a hit, I will eat my hat. And he plays a record called G by the Crows. And it's um, an early R&B record. You know, I mean, you could call it doo-wop. I don't think they called it doo-wop, but, but essentially that's what it was. R&B, doo-wop, something like that. And I'm thinking as I'm writing in, you know, Rizzuto, <laughs> uh, Barra, etc., I'm thinking that's the first thing I've heard on that show that I, that I liked, you know. How old were you then? Twelve. Mm-hmm. You know? and, uh, and then in the fall, that fall, uh, Alan Freed came on and played, started to play rock and roll, you know, what became rock and roll, and that's that's when I start to get interested in it. And so your dad never, your dad didn't say, "Hey, I'm a musician. I'd love you to get into music." It was never like that. No, he didn't. But he bought a guitar for me for my thirteenth birthday, and uh, he showed me the chords that you play, which work for ninety percent of the songs in the in the fifties. He showed me how to play those chords. And, uh, you know, he encouraged me to, you know, to play. But he didn't want me to be a professional musician. No, he just said, you know, do, you know, do this, learn this, you could do this, and you could work your way through college with this, and, you you know, you don't have to be a waiter. You could, you know, just, you know, learn learn the songs and you'll be okay. But by the time I had decided, which was probably like somewhere like a year into listening that that that's that's exactly what I wanted to be was what I was listening to on the radio. By the time I decided that, I, I didn't tell any, anybody. It was it wasn't like you could say I'd like to be a rock and roll singer. There was no profession. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, there was 
you couldn't be that. You couldn't be that. Now you can go to school and. So, uh, so you're 13, and you're still friendly with Art Garfunkel. Did you? Well, guys... that's when that's sort of when we became friends. Uh huh. Well, I, I didn't know him in the in that fourth grade story. I didn't know him. I mean, you know, I didn't really get to know him till the sixth grade, and in the seventh grade, we began to sing together. Mm-hmm. We were the only two kids who were interested in singing, you know, in the in the neighborhood, and uh, and he was sort of he was like a famous singer. He was that, you know, he was that good Famous, famous in, in the, the neighborhood. neighborhood? Yeah. Uh-huh. He was famous. Uh-huh. And did you guys start to, like, play gigs? Did you start entertaining around? Or? Oh, no, no. That was, no, we weren't up to that at all. First we, first we joined up with uh, three other kids, two girls, two sisters, uh, the Pellegrini sisters, Angel and, <laughs> Angel and Ida, and, uh, and Johnny Brennan. Who was uh, like a tenor, and we we made a group, and uh, you know we were imitating, uh, you know, popular songs, uh, and then we never could get the rehearsals right because everybody always had to go to some place after school or do something. So uh, so the, that group fell apart, and Artie and I started to sing together just as a duo that's how it started and we by the time you're 16 you're recording stuff well we were uh we uh tom and jerry uh, that's yeah we well that wasn't we made a rec we made a a record a professional record um but we were uh recording on uh, like uh you know home tape recorder uh, I think I had a, yeah, I, th- I bought a tape recorder. How did I do that? <laughs> I think, I think I sold my baseball card collection. That's a big, that's a big investment right there. That's, it that's was, a big decision. That's like was, a career decision right there. It was, it was $220 to buy this. And it was, what, oh man, I was excited. No. So we would, um, we would sing, and uh, and then we heard the Everly Brothers, and that, you know, that gave us a model. We were huge fans of the Everly Brothers, and uh, we would listen to the to their singing, and we learned how to, uh, you know, how to sing in in thirds or, you know, the, with those kind of intervals that the Everly sing sing in, and we learned their songs and. Um, but before that, that, and that was that, that would be about age fifteen. But before that, like when we were thirteen or fourteen, uh, we, I wrote a song. We wrote a song together. Uh, it was called "The Girl for Me," and it was a hit in the sense that, like, we'd sing it at like on a street corner, and like people would listen to it, and then. They people would ask us to sing it at like the talent show. Then we heard that the, some there were kids in another neighborhood who were singing the song. So, oh, is that right? So, so they they actually ripped the song off, huh? Yeah, I didn't think of it that way, but I guess that's <laughs> the truth. Yeah, I guess that's the truth. Yeah, but anyway, that was uh, that was our first uh, 
That was our first song. And then we would go around uh, to like, like little record companies that were in Midtown Manhattan. We'd take the subway in from Queens, and we'd go and we'd knock on the door, and we'd you could just go in and play and audition, you know. Or I would write write letters to record companies, you know, saying we we write song, you know, we write songs, and would you, you know, would you be interested in listening? I I really didn't even. I just did it just because they would write back. You know, I'd get I'd get an envelope, you know, that had Ace Records on it, <laughs> and I'd be really excited with a Texas postmark and. Uh, this this pilgrimage to to uh, uh, to these uh, houses downtown. I guess you know Carol King and all these folks were making yeah, those that, kinds that of pilgrimage, be, huh? Probably, probably, yeah, yeah, probably similar. You know, but, so, I mean, by the time, um, well, she made a record when she was in high school too. There's Artie and I had made this record when we were in, we were in high school. And I, you know, I remember, like, uh, I played, uh, I played um, baseball for the high school baseball team, and I missed, uh, I missed the practice because we were doing a, a talent show, and and the coach said to me, "Hey, look, you're going to have to make a decision, which is more important here, you know? I mean, either you're going to play ball or you're going to, you know, waste your time on a talent show." Uh-huh. And like for me, it was well. I didn't want to give up either one, you know. But I, I'd so definitely, he kick you off the team? Or? No, no, he didn't kick me off the team. No, I was a leadoff batter. I wasn't gonna. <laughs> I wasn't gonna kick me off the team. But he could. tried and, not to. Tried not to do any conflicting talent show uh, gigs when there was a game or a practice. But Tom and Jerry became like. Well, that was a hit. A hit. Yeah. That song was a. That song was a hit. It was called Hey School Girl. Yeah. And the, the, the label, which was called Big Records, uh, they gave us the name Tom and Jerry. You know, I mean, you, you certainly couldn't use, at that point, the name Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, or Artie and Paul. I guess, the, yeah, I guess you could use Artie and, Artie and Paul. I guess you could have used that, you know. But anyway, you know, he gave us, he gave, gave us that name like the cartoon. So uh, so we made this record, and they put, played the record on Dick Clark's American Bandstand, and everyone voted, you know, I'll give it a 95, I'll <laughs> give it a 95. And, uh, and it became a, a hit. I mean, then we went, came down here to Philadelphia, you know, to come on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. We were 16. It was in November. What was that like? Oh, it was first of all, it was like a big trip. It was that the fact that we were getting on a train and going to Philadelphia was was already an adventure, uh-huh. you know. And then we get on, you know, get on the show and uh, we shared a dressing room with Jerry Lee Lewis. Oh my! Yeah, who you know, who really did he? You know, you know his nickname is the Killer, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what he looked like. He <laughs> came in there, he was combing his hair in a certain way. I said, "Whoa." <laughs> this, this guy is definitely not from our neighborhood, you know. <laughs> and what were you guys dressed in? Do you remember? Yeah, we were, had red blazers, black slacks, and white bucks. Uh huh. <laughs> that, that was our. That was our. Uh, and and uh, um, I think black bow ties. 
So you, you plowed the proceeds of your record into these outfits and went to no, the, uh, no, our parents bought the, bought the outfits. And uh, we made, and the record sold enough that, you know, we made, uh, you know, a couple of thousand dollars. Enough money that I could buy my first car. Did you did you know at that moment that this is what you were going to do? Because you went off to college after that. Yeah, no, we you didn't. You both did. Yeah. No, we didn't think that this would be something that we would that we would do. All we wanted to do was have a song that got played on the radio. It never you know, I mean the idea that we would actually go on American bandstand was beyond uh, what we possibly could have hoped for. And know. everybody was watching American bands. Yeah, no, time. yeah. We were famous. We, and, I mean, in our school, we were... Big deal. Yeah, we were, we and were did you play? Deal. Were you performing then around the neighborhood, around the school, around the... Well, I guess a little bit, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I remember <laughs> once we got... One of the shows, we got booked at a... We got booked at a, in a, in a in Hartford, and we played this theater called the, uh, the Hartford State Theater. And uh, it was really, uh, and we were on a bill with a bunch of other uh, rock and roll acts, Laverne Baker, and I can't, I can't remember the others. Anyway, it was like, it was something like playing the Apollo in New York. The audience was, I'd say, 90% black. And, uh, you know, they did They'd introduce us, and they'd say, ladies and gentlemen, Tom and Jerry, and people would go, yay, and then <laughs> silence. They'd see, <laughs> we came out, we come up to the mic, and just silence. You know? <laughs> Did you get them going then, again? No, we never, of course not. We get them going, we didn't know anything. But they were going to pay us, I think they were paying us like $600 for uh, for the a weekend or something. That's you know, a lot of dough back lo- in the, in a the lot. day, late fifties. A lot, yeah. really a lot, you know. Uh, but uh, we were, and we were staying at some hotel in Hartford, and uh, well, we were walking back to the room, and uh, some guy was in in the room. I guess he was in in the room with the, with a girl, you know. And he said, "Hey, uh, what do you, what do you do? You know, what's that guitar? What are you doing?" We said, "Oh, we play." Uh, you know, we're going to play at the Hartford State Theater. And he said, really? I'll give you 20 bucks if you play a song for us. And we said, really? And he said, yeah. And we said, okay. We, <laughs> we played, the, played for the 20 you bucks. Set, so we're getting the, paid $600. Set, set the environment for him there. Is that what you did? It was like, you know, the, the, the difference between, you know, that they were paying us $600 for the week and this guy was going to pay us $20 was like, it was, it was might, might as well have been a babysitting job. You know? <laughs> and then, uh, so, uh, but then you, you, you split up to go to school. Is that, is that what happened? Yeah, we had one hit. Then we put out a, a second record. It wasn't a hit. I think they might even put out a third record. Um, and then uh, we graduated, and we went to you know we went we went off to college. I have to tell you, someone along the way put out a Tom and Jerry album. Maybe after you became famous as Simon and Garfunkel, are you you're aware of this? Yeah, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, but about a ha- about a half of those songs are not us. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah, because or or, or else it's the. Uh, 
You know, I used to, what happened after is that when I was in college, I used to do uh, demos. And that's how I met Carol King. Mm-hmm. Demos mean, meaning that like uh, songwriters would write a song for a specific artist and they would book, uh, book me and I would sing the song that they wrote for that artist, you know, kind of in a voice that was aimed at whoever, you know, whoever it was. Like we want Frankie Avalon to record I see. this. So, so this is so this was to pitch Frankie Avalon on right, doing doing the song. On doing it. So we we would do the demo, and I would play the guitar, and uh, and you know they usually had professional musicians, and I'd learn the song, and uh, and that's sort of how I you know made money when I was when I was in college. But of course, I was also uh, Artie wasn't doing that. Uh, you guys went to do. He went to Columbia. He went to right? Columbia. I went to Queens College. And you were studying. He was studying math. Well, he started out studying architecture, and then uh, he switched. Then he switched to math. You know, and I, I studied. Uh, as I said, I studied English literature. Mm-hmm. So, but I mean, doing this on a like two or three times a week. I mean, first of all, it was like, uh, it paid, I think it paid like $50 to do a demo. So if you did three demos a week, you would pay $150. Uh, You know, you could buy gas for your car and you could go out and you could buy your clothes and uh, it was pretty good. But also, I was recording all the time. So I learned about recording techniques, you know, you know, how to use a mic, how to overdub and sing in harmony with yourself, you know, uh, ha- how to play and make tracks. And basically it was my, that was my training uh, in, in being a recording artist. All this talk about money reminds me that I have to take a short break for a word from our sponsor. But you, so you went to Queens College mm-hmm. and, um, and, your music career, so you did these sessions. What were you thinking then? Did you think, I'm just trying to get at this because I'm trying to figure out how, how, how you become who you are. You know what I mean? Well, a, a lot of it is, uh, is luck. Uh, you know, I was thinking about music, and then I met Carol King. And her, her story it was very similar to mine, except she didn't have a hit. But she had learned the same thing in the studios. And then we started to do demos together. And we would do, uh, like Carol would play uh, drums and piano and sing. And I would play guitar and bass. So we could make a whole record, you know, and, you know, between the two of us, just overdubbing. And uh, and then she... Um, and then she met Jerry Goffin, who was also at Queens College, and they quit and they got married, and you know the rest, as they say, you know, it's history. And uh, but I uh, and they Did you see that show by the way on Broadway, beautiful. The show about her. No, I didn't, but but I heard it's really good. It really was. It's really really good. And it's it's a hit all over all over yeah. the place. I was in London recently, and I saw they had a. Had a version of it, but a lot of it is that scene that you were talking about, you know, at these re- recording companies and all these young players just trying to make it. Yeah, every, they they were the uh, 
There was a company uh, called Alden Music, and it was in. There were two. Bi- there were two big buildings in New York that had uh, record companies and publishers. One was the Brill Building, which is yes. sort of famous, right? And where that little record company that I was on, Big Records, where that they were in that, and uh, and then there was this other building, sixteen fifty Broadway, that had. Newer publishers and kind of hipper. The 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 Brill Building, you know, that was Hill and Range, which was country music, and uh, Johnny Marks. He wrote Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. He was in that building, hmm. you know. And uh, but anyways, she she and Jerry got signed to this company that had uh, a, a lot of young talent. Uh, Neil Sedaka. Uh, Cynthia Mann, a man and mm-hmm. while, and anyway, they were in that world, but I wasn't. I was still. Did you know Carol? Did you see in her the possibility that she could be something special down the line? No. <laughs> <laughs> she would. She say the same about you, probably, huh? Yeah, probably she would. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think either one of us thought that. Uh... I mean, you guys are like two of the big figures in American music in the last. 60 years. Yeah, it's kind of hilarious. That's what I mean. It's like, see, I mean, there. If, once you say that, in sort of the last six, 60 years, well, okay, so let's say it was 50 years instead of 60. But, and that's a big period of time, 50 years. Yeah. And yet, you know, it's, it's you know, it goes fast. So advance the story for me because where I came into the story as a kid was Sounds of Silence and the way you guys sort of well, burst on the scene. and Sound of Silence. Um, well, well, what happened was um, Artie and I you know, had went through our phase where we imitated the Everly Brothers, had this little, this little hit, Hey School Girl, broke up, went away to college. Um, I lost interest in rock and roll, you know, as the, as the, in the, in the middle 50s, there was something fascinating about it to me. And actually, I, it still is. It's still my favorite period of popular music is 1954 to 56. Uh, and, uh, and then as the music became much more, you know, mainstream, as it went from being, you know, like what they used to call it, race records, you know, uh, or country and western hillbilly you know i mean mm-hmm. once that all came together uh with uh the doo-wop groups on the corners and ray charles and johnny cash and elvis presley all these disparate voices from the different elements of american culture and you put it all together and you called it rock and roll um well that was uh Oh, I don't know. I forgot what I was talking about. But you, uh, but you went. What all, was I to actually talking? You were about? you were talking about the I, I, sounds of. Oh, sounds how did it happen? Yeah. Oh, so as the fifties, you know, got towards the late fifties, it got more commercialized and became much, much less interesting. And I mean, also you had American Bandstand, and so it became, uh, you know, more corporate, mm-hmm. and uh, they started to package, you know. Kids who were 
good looking and sell records that way. It wasn't the way it was sort of naturally, which was almost like an American kind of folk music. Right. So I lost my interest uh, in uh, in rock and roll as it became stupider, <laughs> and I became interested in you know folk music, the Weavers and. Uh, Joan Baez and uh, and then you know and then Bob Dylan Dylan came along yeah and and I switched playing electric guitar and got an acoustic guitar and so I started to write you know in that style and uh, now I'm I'd be in my early twenties but so somewhere. Around the age of 22, I think, um, really almost out of nowhere, I wrote The Sound of Silence. And that was like a, a big jump over like the three or four or five songs that I'd written that were like that. And that, were that, that was that style. And I mean, I still find it really quite extraordinary that I wrote this song when I was 22 years old. And, and I thought at the time... This song is much better than what I what I'd written, and I, I think it's like uh, this has happened to me several times in my career that I can remember, where you feel like you know, uh, where you feel like you're just a conduit, and you uh, a song comes through you, and uh, it's quite an extraordinary feeling. It's like, and you, I'm sure you've heard it described many times and probably know the feeling, you know, uh, where something just sort of writes itself yeah. and, it's, and it's there. Well, that was, that was the first one that, that happened like that. And um, um, the first I know that's the first time that, that that ever happened. And I noticed it, but I didn't think anything of it because you don't think anything of anything when you're... 22 years you, yeah everything is seems like well that's just the way it is and <laughs> um uh i used to uh go back and forth to england because uh, i had made it you know one summer i went to uh the first time i went to europe i met some english kids and they said oh come and stay with us and so i'd go over and and I had a girlfriend in England, and I'd go and I'd sing in uh, in these clubs, these little folk clubs in England. And um, anyway, we made our record, "The Sound of Silence," it was on on this album, Wednesday morning, three a.m. and um, and the record came out, and it was a flop. And a year later, the guy who was our producer, his name is Tom Wilson. Um, after the success of uh, Mr. Tambourine Man, the, the Birds. Whoops! To turn my phone off. This is this is Ali Ali. This is my uh, my ringtone. It's 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 Ali Farka Toure, guitarist from Mali. Nice. Anyway, um, so a year later they overdubbed electric instruments on top of our acoustic version. Well, I was living in England. I wasn't even in the studio when they did it. And uh, let's see why they did that. Oh, they did it because a station in Boston was playing the acoustic version and a station in Jacksonville, Florida was also playing it. And they were starting to get requests for this song. And so they decided to make it 
folk rock, which had you know was now right. had now become a genre. Right. And uh, so they overdubbed drums and a and a electric twelve string guitar, and the song became a number one record. You know, all while you were away. Yeah, all while I was. That's why I say there's so much luck luck in it. You know. And you um, came and the, and then you came back and you guys. And just I came started. back. Yeah, I came back, but I didn't think I'd be back for long. You know, I came. I, I left England. I said. Uh, uh, I said to my girlfriend, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if I if I make fifty thousand dollars from this this year. So I'll just do that, and then I'll come back, and that's where I'll live. You know, I'll live here off that. You know. So um, anyway, it was just a the record was just a giant smash, and uh, and I how think, much did you make off of it? I think I think the first year I think I made about three hundred thousand dollars. Wow. Which was wow is exactly right because here's my father still working as a musician and doing this and this this is like ten times yeah what what you know he he was making. what did he think about it well I'm sure he was utterly amazed you know I'm sure he was proud and amazed and. Uh, but also, in its own way, it threw the family dynamic into a, 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 an odd shape for somebody like who I guess I was about twenty-four years old then to suddenly be the, suddenly have this you know uh-huh. lot fame and money. And then I used to think when Carol was right, Carol King was writing all her hits. I used to really wonder why you know was frustrated that I couldn't write a hit but I used to think if I ever do have a hit I'll know how to write the next one I don't know how to make the first one but I'll know how to make the second one and that's exactly what happened with Sound of Silence you know once that was a hit then I had already written Homeward Bound and I Am a Rock and so Simon and Garfunkel just Took off. Took off with all these songs that I wrote when I was in England. Huh. And you, uh, what followed was just a string of big hits, both albums and... Yeah, Simon and Garfunkel was straight hits for like five years. We were together five years. I want to ask you about that. Um, We're going to take another short break and we'll be right back with Paul Simon. Well, I did, in a way, set out to do it, you know, but it was, seemed so improbable. But uh, Well, I mean, very few people have... We're, we're up. Uh, uh, let me remember where we... Oh, yes. So I want to ask you about this being together for five years. You guys were huge. I mean, you guys were... There were certain iconic musical... Acts, you know, the Beatles, uh, Bob Dylan, uh, and you guys were in that category, sort of the big, big music. Yeah, we had, we had a period from 1968 to 1970, like from The Graduate to yes. Bridge Over Troubled Water, where we probably were as big as the Beatles. Right. So how, uh, why did you break up? Well, uh, 
Well, first of all, uh, uh, duos are, uh, they're, they're, you know, they all break up, really. Uh, Martin and Lewis, uh, the Everly brothers, uh, it's just, it's, it's almost impo- impossible. Why? To, you get on each other's nerves. <laughs> uh, people have individual, you know, they, they, they want to go in one direction. Somebody wants to go in another direction. In our case... What we had was a, a, a real unbalance in that I wrote all the songs and uh, and played played guitar and uh, and then we sat and then we sang so we we um, yeah we weren't balanced you know so when we were asked to do the graduate uh, Mike Nichols was the director of the graduate. He said, oh, I'd like you both to be in a, my next movie. It's going to be Catch-22. And uh, so, I mean, we were thrilled because the idea of being in a movie was just, you know, over the moon. And But uh, then that summer, uh, Mike, he, he called me and he said, you know, the script is, is, has, is so long that we're going to have to take your character out. Uh, so, so Art was in the movie, but you weren't, right? So, Art went down to uh, you know for long periods of time to Mexico to shoot this, and and he wanted to be uh, in the movies as well as do you know do this. Um, so. Um, he said, well, okay, the way, you know, the way I see it is like, I'll do movies for six months and you'll write songs and then I'll come back and then I'll sing, you know, sing for six months. And I thought, yeah, the hell with that, man. (laughs) (laughs) That's not going to happen, you know. Um, So you went off And then, not quite, not quite. You know, and so, uh, and we were, we were, we were arguing, we used to argue like all the time, even when we were kids. But then we made we we, we would uh, you know fix it like very rapidly. We could say, let's just drop this right now and like <laughs> forget about the whole thing. We'd say, okay, good. Uh, but but in the recording of uh, of Bridge Over Troubled Water, no, no, there were arguments. It wasn't wasn't that pleasant. And then he took a second movie. Arguments over music. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. music. Music arguments, uh, and then he took a second movie, uh, Carnal Knowledge, mm-hmm. and uh, and he didn't tell me about it. And uh, somebody, a mutual friend, said, "Oh, so Artie's going to do uh, Carnal Knowledge?" And I said, I, "I didn't know about that." And I said to Artie, "Are you going to do another movie?" Like, and he said, "Yeah, I'm going to do this." And I said, "Why didn't you tell me?" And he said, "Well, I was afraid that you would stop, you know." working on this if I told you. So uh, that really pissed me off. You know, and I just decided that's the end of that. I don't want to, I don't want to do this anymore. So uh, I went to uh, Columbia Records. Clive Davis was the head of the label. And I said, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to, I like to do, you know, solo record. And he said, that's the, the biggest mistake of your life. <laughs> he said, 
Simon and Garfunkel is like a household term, and and uh, you're making the biggest mistake of your life. And I said, well, who knows? You know, maybe by the end of my career, I'll say. Uh, people will say, well, you know, in the and in the beginning of his career, he sang with uh, as a duo. You know. Uh huh. Said. Anyway, that's what's that's what's well, going to happen. Well, and that was prescient because you have turned out like a ton of solo albums that are in their own way as iconic as the stuff that you did um, as a, as a duo. Yeah, uh, that's a, that's exa- mean, that's what happened. Uh, and are you happier as a solo artist? Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, I mean, there were things that I wanted to do that uh, that Artie wouldn't have wanted to, to have done. I mean, you know, he, he, I'm sure that when you when you take my first solo album, that would have been the next Simon and Garfunkel album. Uh, he wouldn't have wanted to go to Jamaica to record, you know, a reggae tune, and there was no big ballad in there. I mean, he was Artie was a, and child was a reunion. great. That with Mother and Child Reunion mm-hmm. is a reggae tune, yeah. But Artie, you know, had a great voice for ballads and big ballads, right. you know. And uh, uh, that meant I'd have to that I, I would have to try and write big ballads, um, which don't come that easily. Uh, certainly not at the level of like a bridge over over right. troubled water. So I mean, you know, even trying to attempt to to like come and top that, it would, that couldn't have been done anyway for the next album. You had to go the other way and make it small and rhythmic uh because uh, it's just bridge was just too big an album yeah. to, to you know to say I'm going to do that again but even bigger and better. <laughs> right. I, I wouldn't have I would have I would have naturally gone even if it was the, the duo to where I went, which was down to make it small and rhythmic, and I liked singing rhythm. And Artie really didn't like singing rhythm that much. So you, um, I'm interested in the fact that you have reinvented your music in so many different ways. Going to South Africa, going to Brazil, going to going to, I mean, you know, See, what, it's not a reinvention. What it is is, um, well, first of all, if you go back to the early stages of rock and roll, what I described a few minutes ago, hearing music from, hearing Fats Domino from Louisiana and hearing Frankie Lyman from the streets in New York and then hearing uh, Johnny Cash or, you know, from Arkansas or Presley from Mississippi and all of this music, all coming from, or the Everleys, you know, wh- whose music really comes from Appalachian uh, harmonies, hearing all of that is really world music. Uh, of course, nobody, the term didn't exist, and we didn't, we didn't think of it as anything other than rock and roll, but really all those different sounds are sounds from different parts of the world. Louisiana, that syncopation and that rhythm, that's that's coming out of African, West African uh, drumming. The Everleys and those harmonies, that's coming from uh, Scott, 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 Gaelic music, Irish music, English, 
English folk tunes. Um, the uh, the doo-wop groups were coming from gospel quartets. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just you were just looking for the roots so of all of these different. Not even I was not even looking. I was following a sound, the sounds that I liked. You know, I liked all of those sounds. So, I mean, this is jumping way ahead, but when I hear Ladysmith Black Mombazo, it sounds like the, the best doo-wop group I, that I'd ever heard. But it was, it was that, that kind of thing. Uh, when I heard South African music, it sounded like something like early rock and roll guitar music. Not exactly, but not so far away that I thought thought of it as foreign. I mm-hmm. didn't, you know. Rhythm of the Saints gets more. That's that's a further leap, you know, because there wasn't that much just percussion in my in my early life. Although, if you grow up in New York, you are going to hear percussion because you you you're going to hear bongos and congas and going to hear a little bit of Latin. So the sound is is there. But uh, by the time uh, I, you know, would move from one thing to another, or like reggae, like mother and child reunion, when I lived in England, ska, which was a precursor to reggae, was very popular, and I liked it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so when I went to uh, to Jamaica to record mother and child reunion, I came down there and I said, I want to do, you know, here's a song I, I wrote, and I want to do a ska record and they said oh we don't play ska anymore we we play reggae so uh, i said oh well cool let's <laughs> what's reggae you know and they so that's how i that's how i fell into it uh when i was living in england i did i got booked on a show in paris and i heard a group called los incas play a song called el condor pasa and it was so beautiful you know and they gave me their record i loved it and I never thought there was any big distinction to be made from one culture to another. If I liked it, I, to me, it was all popular music. It was fine. It was just a stranger kind of, you know, more unusual. Uh, so uh, my ear takes me to the places that I that I like, and uh, and I. It, I'm sort of passive, really, uh, as as a as a musician, and as kind of as a personality. I've, so, it's not like I go searching for anything. I, I don't. It's things. I hear things. You know. I, I mean, if I were driving driving on the street and I heard something in the car next to me, I would r- roll down the window and and listen. I, I'm just curious. I'm I'm curious yeah. about sounds that I like, and I follow them, and uh, and they, the more you do that, the more you start to see that there are connections between sounds, or you can try to make connections between sounds. Well, I I just uh, as I mentioned earlier, I was at one of your shows uh, for a stranger to stranger new album. And your band right, was so, band is so diverse the, in its exactly. sound that it's a beautiful thing to hear all these sounds blended together. Um, which leads me to the question. I want to talk a little bit about politics in a second. But uh, you you gave an interview to the New York Times. And you and I have spoke. We spoke about this when I uh-huh. when were in Chicago. Uh, basically saying you thought this was maybe it in terms of 
touring and that well, writing ac- albums and so on. Actually, I didn't say that. Uh, it was, uh, but that's that's the way he wrote the story. What I said well, was a lot of people were probably pretty sad about that. Yeah, a lot of people wrote to me. I got a lot of a lot of letters. Uh, but then, uh, but then Chuck Close called me up. He's Chuck Close, the the, the great portrait painter. He mm. called me and he said, "You can't, you can't retire. All the good ideas come from work." And uh, I said, "Okay, you talked me into it." <laughs> That's you all know. it took. Huh? Well, it actually, in a way, it's all it took. But but the truth is, is that I didn't say that I was going to stop. I said I think it would be interesting to stop for a period of time and see if my creative impulse if I denied the normal uh you know course of of the of my creative impulses if I denied them their destination in the form of a song or in music I thought this could be interesting to see what will I think of what what could I? What other you know, channels? Yeah, what what, other maybe there's something else that's to be discovered. Neuro paths will be the, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, that. and uh, so that's that's what I said. Is that you know? He's. I said, yeah, I'm thinking of stopping, but I I wasn't like, I'm thinking of stopping because I'm played out. I was thinking of stopping because I had this other thought, but he wrote it as. He's yeah. gonna. He's gonna. Well, having quit. seen it, honestly, and it's, I say this behind your back, but having seen that show, it would be a shame because that was really, really such an incredible show. And uh, you know what's remarkable is you're still sort of at the top of your game. Uh, well, I feel I am actually. At the Stranger top, Stranger is a great album. I think thank you. I, I really enjoyed it, and thank I know you. it's done very well. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a hit. It's a hit album. But again, I'll, I'll you know tell you how I think. If I say I can't stop because people they like it so much, well, then I'm working for right for people. You know, then so that's making my decision. And my career hasn't been based on mm-hmm. I'm going to follow what people want me to do. You know, if I have if if I have a hit, I'll make another one like that. If right. I have a flop, I'll move in another direction. Right. I've just gone, as I said, sort of passively from one place of interest to another. So if I think I can't stop now because people really right. not a good enough reason to keep going. Yeah, would be turning over the power. Well, also, you know, there are a lot of people, your peers, who are out there, and they're basically playing the songs that they wrote a long time ago. Uh, well, so you do so, yeah. But you're also you're also playing new music, and um, so uh, and I think that's a little bit different. You know, it is different. Yeah. It is different. I'm not really. I'm all I'm saying is that. If you're, you know, it, it took it took me a long time before I would ever describe myself as being an artist. I I, I didn't I never I was always uncomfortable if people said I was an artist, but uh, somewhere in my like late forties, I, I said, oh, I I, I am an artist. <laughs> I said that doesn't mean I'm a good artist. 
It's just a kind of personality. It's just mm-hmm. it's just a it's just a personality type, you know. I make up I make up things. That's that's what goes on, and that's who I am. That's right. the descri- that's the description of it. So, if that's the way my mind works, and I'm privileged enough because of my success to continue to let it work that way, then, what, you know, why 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 stop now? You know, I think it will be uncomfortable to stop. You also, I presume. Things came. You talk about the creative process and how it works with you. You're going to need an outlet. You, that's not going to stop. You're, right. You're, you're, yeah. That's so. the theory. That's my theory. Well, there's there's going to be a lot of pressure for me to express whatever is building up in me. But if I don't let that pressure uh, express itself in this this habitual form of music and song. What will happen? Yeah, that's that's really all I was saying. Could end up doing a lot of crossword puzzles. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah, I could. <laughs> I Listen, could. let me ask you this: We're in Philadelphia. I do uh, crossword. Do you? Uh, I don't. I don't. I, I I wish I could slow down enough to do it. That was one of the last gifts my father gave me. You know, taught you taught you to. Yeah, taught me to do the times crossword times puzzle. crossword puzzle. Yeah. Um, so you're here in Philly. You were asked to play at the Democratic National Convention. You and I have talked about this. You're you, you, you're not like an excessively political person. Although when Simon and Garfunkel came around in the that was a very political decade. Yeah, and there were very political. Dylan obviously his songs were became anthemic, and some of yours did. Uh, well, uh, when we, when we made our one and only TV special. Uh, the, the, instead of doing like a variety show, we did it, we did it sort of a, a, as an interview, and it was uh, against it was against the war, and uh, it created a, a furor. We we were being sponsored by AT and T, which was you know as, as establishment as you possibly could, and. Uh, they they said if you don't change this we're we're withdrawing our sponsorship and we said well like what well, we had one scene it was the first time that bridge over troubled water was ever played and it was played behind footage of uh the funeral processions of uh JFK and Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King and they said like that for example you have to change that and we said why? Why? And they said, "Well, it's not fair." And we said, "What's not fair?" And they said, "Well, they're all Democrats." <laughs> oh my! You know, and uh, and we said, "Really? We think of them as all assassinated people." <laughs> you know, but yeah, it was very pol- it was very political. You also, uh, I should have mentioned this earlier. You also went to college with uh, was it Andrew, Andrew Schwer- Goodman. Goodman. Andrew Goodman? Andrew Goodman, yes, yeah. at Queens College. Yeah, we we were in a class together. And did you know him? I mean, yeah. were you friends? Yeah. Well, I I wouldn't say we were friends. I'd say we were, you know, people who knew each other from being in the same class. And uh, how yeah, did... that was a that was a shock. That's the first person I knew who died. Yeah, one of one of the three yeah. great civil rights martyrs who were killed in Philadelphia, Mississippi. Right. Uh, and how did that impact on you? Oh, uh, big. 
as I say, you know, I was just a kid. It was I, I couldn't believe that. It was hard to grasp that somebody who I went to, you know, was in class with was murdered. It was... It was you write about it? Was it was brutal. You wrote about it? I wrote about it, yeah. Um, I, I, I've always thought that, uh, you know, I wasn't particularly uh, uh, good at writing uh, uh, songs that had a point, a political point. Um, all my songs had, uh, not all of them, but many, many had political references. You know, even Mrs. Robinson is, you know, going to the candidates' debate. Right. You know, laugh about it. You know, any way you look at it, you lose. Uh, they would be, you know, there would be a Sounds verse. very contemporary. Yeah, it does. Yes. You know, so, I mean, there would be verses here and there or references here and there. American Tune was written in the 70s, and that's, you know, very political. But I don't think of myself as uh, as a... Uh, I'm not a political writer, and I don't like songs that... I think of them as songs that say, that are... And my point is, mm-hmm. you know... Uh, I find that kind of irritating to have to be. I don't want to be lectured to in a song, and I, so I don't, I don't want to be that. I don't find. I don't think it's entertaining. You know, it's. But some people are great at it. You know, I mean, if you if that's if that's if that's what you do and you're great, if you're Woody Guthrie, you know, or Phil Oaks, or or Dylan, or or Bob Dylan, uh, then uh, that's another story. If you make, can make an art form. Yeah. Out of out of it. But you so why are you here in Philly? Now Bernie Sanders used one of your songs for probably one of his most inspiring ads. Right. Uh America and you he asked for he asked for permission and I and I, and I gave it to him. Um for several reasons. Um you know, one he's like um he's a guy from Brooklyn. You know, uh, I grew up in Queens. We're about we're almost the same age. He's and so here he is running, and he believes in things that I believe in. I mean, he he voted against the war. He well, you know all the things. I know, that, that, I know, you yes. know everything of you know, and I I believe in it. I believe his description of what was going on was also the case, and I thought uh, uh, you know, like he wanted. Citizens United to be overturned, mm-hmm. and uh, I, you know, I think that's, I think that should happen. And so I said, yeah, use my song if you want. Hats off to you. I'm, uh, you know, good for you. I hope that you get your ideas into the debates and that those ideas become, you know, discussed. I mean, if you think about, if you think about the the, the two uh, Obama elections. Um, like they almost never discuss the NRA. You never. Nobody would touch it because it's you know mm-hmm. it's, it has such a negative impact on voter on voters. And now now it came yeah. out. So as these subjects and maybe maybe this this election is going to be the first time that we're actually going to see you know really raw feelings about stuff that hasn't been talked about in, in the recent past or even in well, the Well, there's certainly a lot of raw past. feelings being exposed in this election. So you you came to the convention. Bernie's obviously not the nominee. I think the song you're singing is going to lead 
into him. No, I'm following. Oh, you're following. His, yeah. So, um, but why? Why did think, you decide? Why, why did you decide to come? Um. Um. The Clinton people uh, reached out. Um. I think it's very important that the that the Democrats that this. You know, I think it's very important that Trump be defe- defeated. He's a fellow Queens guy, about your age. That's true. That's true. But he's from a different part of Queens. <laughs> you know. Anyway, it's uh, uh, well. I you know, I could I, I could go on and on like oh, like uh, like everybody can, but. Uh, I think I thought it was important to, uh, you know, to make a contribution um, in this in this particular political climate and uh, and these and these arguments because I think he's he's wrong and and dangerous and uh, and I think uh, it's very important that the Demo- Democrats uh, prevail. And um, I have no, I have, I don't have any doubt that Hillary Clinton is, uh, you know, a, a very bright woman and well prepared uh, to do it. And uh, uh, so I don't feel, um, I, I don't, ha- I don't have any un- unease about uh, about singing. The song and sure. the song that I'm going to sing is "Bridge Over Troubled Water," which seems appropriate. I, I think it's well, yeah. I think it's after the after the last week in Cleveland of, of, with all the rage and, uh, and negative uh, neg- neg- negativity. I think it's good to have a song that has some comfort and empathy in it because well, that's I think really that's what we're what, talking about. It's really what we're talking about. I mean, this is a very this is a tumultuous time and you hope that your leaders will be that that's you know and i, I you know i have a bias here because i worked right. with barack obama but i, I think he's been uh a bridge in many ways yeah know? i'm uh, for me i don't want my money back on obama i'm ha- i'm perfectly happy with uh well, well let me not perfectly happy but uh but I'll, I'll miss him well let me say this um nobody ever Asked for the money back on Paul Simon, and I would be remiss if I didn't just say thank you. I know you don't write, you know, you point out you write for you, but you've also enriched so many other people's lives with your music. I'm one of them, and so I just wanted to thank you, not just for being here, but for that. Well, I appreciate hearing it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.